Coming up, the NBA had a thrilling weekend with two Game 7s, but it's the road teams moving on in the East, while Phoenix draws first blood against the Clippers, who finally make a conference final in their franchise's history, plus plenty of off-the-court news in the association that you would think it's actually the offseason. Both Cup semifinals are best-of-three series, as we'll look back and ahead as to what to possibly expect between the Islanders and Lightning and Canadians and Golden Knights. John Rahm comes from behind to capture the U.S. Open Championship. All the latest in Major League Baseball, including today being the first day of crackdowns with pitchers and spider tech, sunscreen, and all the stuff to doctor up baseballs. A lot to get into, dissect, and discuss. I'll have it all wrapped up neatly with a bow on top, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, spirits are riding high, and you know for me, that is the case. Why? Because it has arrived. Summer 2021 is here. The longest day of the year was yesterday, which means over the next few weeks, it'll be dark around 9, 10, 9, 15, especially if you're in the Northeast or in New York like I am. So all is right in my world at the moment. And on top of that, for those fathers out there, I hope you enjoyed your special day yesterday. I know I did. And speaking of enjoyment, 
You're about to witness the strength of sports knowledge because with hard-hitting analysis and unapologetic opinions coming from yours truly, please sit back, relax, walk, run, drive, cook, clean, or whatever you may be doing at this moment because this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 199 episodes, that's right, I'm just a free throw, a solo home run, and an extra point away from 200. So also... You know I'm not going anywhere, people, because this is what I love to talk about, and for you to keep on coming back, and I welcome you guys back if you've been here more than once, so I appreciate you all, I'll save a lot of that for next week, but with that said, it is a Monday, June the 21st, in the year of our Lord, 2021, the J Wheels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows, we're in the middle of two very good series in the Stanley Cup semifinals as both are now best of three. I'll bring you up to speed on what's happening between the Islanders and Lightning, the Canadians and Golden Knights. Lots to dissect, lots to get into with those two series as we get that much closer to a Stanley Cup final. John Rahm bounces back from what took place a couple of weeks ago at the Memorial Tournament where he had to withdraw due to COVID. And now he's on top of the golf world as he wins his first major in comeback fashion. I'll break down everything that happened at Torrey Pines there, especially yesterday as it came down to the wire where Rom was victorious. Also some breaking news in college sports regarding the U.S. Supreme Court and a ruling where compensation may be forthcoming for student-athletes in both Division I football and basketball. Everything that's happening in baseball, including today being the first day where they'll enact some suspensions and umpires will probably go after some pitchers to make sure that they're not doctoring baseballs or don't have anything on their uniforms, belts, caps, etc. I'll get into all of that, including my hero and zero of the week. As I've been discussing here over the last few weeks how lackluster the NBA postseason has been, well, all you have to do is just look at the last 48 hours and it was a good Bad and ugly for the league. And you know I'm going to break down every single one. But you did get some thrilling, heart-stopping, nail-biting, white-knuckling type of moments here. Dating back to Friday night. Where in Los Angeles and even in Brooklyn and then last night in Philadelphia. It all culminated to where now we have a Final Four. An Eastern and Western Conference showdown where we actually had Game 1 of the West Final take place in Phoenix between the Clippers. That's right, the Los Angeles Clippers. We've talked about this ad nauseum in years past where if you're Doc Rivers, you were unable to get to that next level, including last year, up three games to one against the Denver Nuggets and not being able to seal the deal. And all those teams, even before that, the Donald Sterling teams of Lob City, CP3, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, etc. And here they are, front and center in rarefied air for a Clipper organization, as we all know, has been one of the laughing stocks in sports throughout the, I'm not going to say this past decade, but we know historically the Clippers are associated with just being putrid. But before we get to the Western Conference Final Game 1 yesterday, and also a look ahead to the Eastern Conference Final, which will take place Wednesday night in Milwaukee, But when we go back to Friday night and kind of tidy the week that was here with the NBA postseason, the Clippers were able to get to this point without their best player. And if that doesn't make you wonder whether or not this team 
finally may be able to get over the hump and attain something that I'm sure the 15 Clipper fans out there couldn't even imagine. Whether it would be early on this postseason, certainly last year as we discussed there in the bubble, and years past to where they're actually four wins away from making it to an NBA final. With Kawhi Leonard not being able to play going back to game five due to a knee injury, and rumor has it that it's feared that it could be an ACL. The first thing is, why is this knee injury so mysterious to the point that we're left in the dark as to what his status is going to be for the remainder of this postseason? I mean, here's a guy that's an All-NBA player. I believe he did make first-team All-NBA this year to go along with Giannis and Luka and a couple others. But for us to be kind of in this gray area, all right, we know he's injured, we know he's not going to play. All right, is it an ACL injury that he's dealing with where he's probably going to need surgery? Is it just a mild sprain? What is happening? As we saw at the end of game four, or toward the end of game four, he limped off the Staples Center court with this injury and at first you didn't think it was going to be anything too serious but now three games later and one game into a Western Conference Final you have to wonder whether or not we're ever going to see Kawhi Leonard in this uniform again because as we know he could opt out of his contract and go elsewhere after the playoffs will conclude and for us to not know what the hell's going on with his status and it should be public knowledge considering we've watched this team over the last couple of years and more so during this postseason to say, what's happening with Kawhi? Why is this Fort Knox top secret global thermonuclear war a la war games back in 1984 that we don't know what the hell's going on with this health? And people can say, oh, Jay Reel's not your business. Well, as sports fans and especially the dozen plus Clipper fans out there don't you think they want to know whether or not you're going to see Kawhi Leonard ever again especially throughout this postseason so that's number one but you have to give the Clippers a ton of credit considering what they did there in the game five to be able to have Paul George rise to the occasion and he's one guy I've destroyed on this podcast time after time and rightfully and understandably so a guy that's making top dollar a guy who Could be one of the top 15 players in the league, but he has his moments where he floats in and out. But he put the team on his back there in a game five in Utah, hostile environment, etc. And he delivered. And it made you wonder whether or not he still had a couple of more games like that in him, considering with the way the Clippers have played this postseason, as we know, in the first round against the Mavericks, they weren't able to win a home game until the final game of that series. And then down 2-0 to the Utah Jazz even though they needed a heroic performance from Paul George in Game 5 we also had to see that in Game 6 and as we get to Game 6 all you could say is that Paul George did play well but it's going to be forever known especially in Clipperland as the Terrence Mann game and funny that you look at a guy who is substituting for Kawhi Leonard to pretty much play Kawhi Leonard in Terrence Mann's jersey Because all he did in the game was score 20 points in the third quarter, 39 points overall, 15 for 26, and Paul George leading the way too with a stupendous performance on his part. But sadly, and I have to flip the coin to the other side here for a second because the Utah Jazz, and we understand that Donovan Mitchell had this ankle injury that he was 
belaboring toward the end of the regular season and even into the postseason. And I know he probably hasn't slept a wink ever since that game Friday night. But when you have, and this is going to be a recurring theme here over the course of the next, I guess, 20 minutes talking about the NBA. But when you have a 25-point lead early in the third quarter and understood that the NBA is a totally different game to yesteryear, that sometimes a double-digit lead, whether it's 15, 18, 20, even 25 points, isn't insurmountable anymore because of the way the game is played. Obviously, the perimeter players, the three-point shooting, just the overall aggressiveness of how these offenses are. And, right, you could go two for 24 like the Houston Rockets did in Game 7 against the Warriors a few years ago that they were unable to make it to an NBA Final. But if you have a hot hand or a couple of players that are going to light up the scoreboard and certainly bring your team back from what could have been the dead to win a game and, in this case, win a series, then... Although it seems to be more acceptable to blow these double-digit leads, but if you're an old and diehard NBA fan like myself, it still comes across as unconscionable, and at the same time, it's unacceptable. Because, granted that that other team, on the other side of the floor, they have professionals, and they have the wherewithal to come from behind and chip away and make runs, as we know that's how the NBA is, but... If you're the Utah Jazz and Donovan Mitchell to have that type of display, and then when you think about it, when you look at the final score, and losing by 14 points as you're up by 25 early in the third, man, that is just a putrid, pathetic, and an abomination overall. Because not only just from that game alone, but you had a 2-0 series lead, and Kawhi Leonard gone in games 5, 6, and to who knows when. And I don't want to hear from the Jazz or even from anybody that follows the team to say, well, we didn't have Mike Conley. And he did give an effort there in a game number six. Five points didn't really do much. It was pretty much a decoy or window dressing for that matter. But when Mitchell and the Jazz had this dominant regular season, one seed, yeah, they were going back and forth, a little tug of war with the Phoenix Suns, but they were able to get the one seed with no Lakers in the picture, Golden State, although they're not the Golden State of a few years ago, but with Steph Curry, you never know, he could shoot you to the next round, and not having to deal with the former heavyweights of the Western Conference, for them to spit the bit here, it has to fall at the feet, not only of the coach Quinn Snyder, but also at the same time Donovan Mitchell, and I understand he was playing hurt, and he wasn't 100%, but if you're playing in these games and you're giving max effort, as he was, and Scored a ton of points in this postseason. There is no excuse. And even said in the postgame. He says when he goes to the grocery store, he's going to be thinking about this. And we talked about Donovan Mitchell early on in this regular season, especially after that interview we had with Shaq, where Shaq kind of put him on the grill to say, hey, we know you're a great player, but how are you going to take your game to the next level? And Donovan Mitchell said, yeah, you're right. I have to do that. And I got to show and prove. And yes, we know Donovan Mitchell is a very good player. Is he a superstar player? He's on the cusp. But you would only hope, if you're a Jazz fan, that this is going to be not only a gigantic chip on his shoulder, but this is going to be the biggest learning lesson of his basketball life that he could spread this out to the rest of his team, the culture of this team, the new ownership, Dwayne Wade, etc. And I'm sure he's going to have his fingerprints on this for next year and moving forward. But 
you got to call it as you see it, just a terrible performance by the Jazz. But then going back to the other side of the coin, you got to give it up for the Clippers because this is a team that has shown zero testicular fortitude pretty much throughout their franchise's history and at least for the last series and even a Game 7 against Dallas where all the road teams won up until Game 7, you got to give it up for Tyron Lue and what they've done. Now as we turn our attention to the East and now Saturday night, now the Brooklyn Nets without Kyrie Irving and with James Harden miraculously being healthy to perform in a Game 5 which everybody's going to remember as the Kevin Durant game. And sadly, it's going to be a footnote. As we all know, the Brooklyn Nets have not advanced. But with that performance that he had there in a game five, on top of Jeff Green's 27 points where he hit seven three-pointers and they eked out a win against the Bucks, who in their own right had a 17-point lead there in the third quarter and they squandered that. And from that moment on, you probably thought if the Bucks don't make it out of this series alive, they're going to look back at that game five and rue the day that they weren't able to hold on to that lead, even with James Harden back only scoring five points but playing 46 minutes. And then game six, the Bucks took care of business at home. And now we forward to a game seven, which I'm going to admit I did not watch from start to finish. I was watching the Islander game. I'm sorry. I had my focus on that. I was going back and forth, but... Thankfully, I was able to capture the last few minutes of the fourth quarter and into the overtime. But from what I saw, Harden, again, played a little bit better in Game 6 and a little bit better in Game 7. And I'm not going to kill him. I could kill him for walking off the court with .3 seconds. Right, the game was over. But you saw Kevin Durant exchanging pleasantries and showing just the outright class that he has, sportsmanship, etc., with the Milwaukee Buck team and Harden was nowhere to be found and pretty much went off to the locker room, but that's another story. But for the Nets and understood, they were bruised, hurt, left everything out in that court. Durant, 53 minutes, he had the miraculous shot and that shot would have been one for the ages. That turnaround shot where his toe was on the three-point line, which... Technically would have won the game because the Bucks had one second left on the shot clock. And the Bucks were awful in those final couple of seconds with the inbounds passes. And their execution from the inbounds was terrible. So chances are if Durant was just six inches behind that line right there on the right side making that shot. The Nets would be playing the Atlanta Hawks instead. But as he made that shot and you go into overtime. And to think that their only basket was a putback by Bruce Brown in the first minute of overtime. The Nets just ran out of gas. And Kevin Durant, who was contested there by Drew Holiday on the biggest shot attempt of the game where he airmailed it. And of course, the Bucks had the free throws that ended the game. And as I said, with no Kyrie and Harden going at 50% or whatever he was at and Durant on fumes, they left it all out there. And you got to give them a ton of credit. And sometimes these Game 7s come down to that. But... That does not negate the fact that this was a bitter, bitter defeat. It was championship or bust for this team, even if I was in the backcourt. And Joe Harris, I understand he's getting a lot of flack here. He missed a big wide open three there in overtime, which I believe at that time would have put the game, not out of reach, but it would have been a five-point game as opposed to a two-point game, which was pretty much for most of that overtime because the Bucks weren't able to score there in those first couple of minutes. And it's going to be a long offseason to ponder 
the possibilities of what went wrong down the stretch with this Brooklyn Net team. And of course, you're going to look at the injuries. And of course, you're going to look at this team wasn't at full strength. And rightfully so. But they should have been able to move on to the next round. That's all there is to it. And give credit to Milwaukee Bucks as we go to the other side of that coin. Because as I said, they could have lost this series if Durant would have made that shot. And if it was a three-pointer at the end. And that would have been just a bitter pill to swallow. Because they could look at that as well as losing game five. As the reasons why they weren't able to advance. But give it up. Giannis played well. Brooke Lopez had a big block on Durant there in the overtime. Which was huge. And... They did just enough. Chris Middleton was unable to duplicate the performance he had there in game number six with the 38 that he did to propel the Bucks to a game seven. And Milwaukee, they have some demons to exercise as well. When you look at two years ago being up to love to the Toronto Raptors and we know what happened after that. Last year's pathetic performance against the Miami Heat in the second round, which they atoned here in the first round with a sweep of the defending Eastern Conference champions. And now they get to host, not the Philadelphia 76ers, which they would have been the team to host in the next round. But with the game last night between the Hawks and Sixers, and I'm going to start off by saying this, again, 26-point lead in Game 5. They blow that. They had an 18-point lead early in the series, I believe in Game 4, and they blew that. And this team was just unable to get a clutch basket, was able to get a key defensive stop. And here is the difference between both teams, just signified by one player. When you look at the Hawks, especially in the game last night, where Trey Young was awful for three plus quarters, but he had ice water in his veins because he was able to make a 33 foot three. He was able to distribute and get a few big assists some lobs for dunks and not only that show why that he's a guy that you would trust more than a lot of people in this league and he's only been in the NBA for three years to where the flip side of that is Ben Simmons where the guy literally cannot shoot the ball into the ocean off the side of a yacht and we're going to get to all of his foibles in a minute But I'm going to start with the Hawks here because now they're on a magical run to where they dispose of the Knicks in five and here they are against the number one top-seeded 76ers where the process, although it was one that you were told that you have to trust, but the one thing that you didn't expect was that this team not only was to wilt, but you got to wonder what's in between their ears and what's in their hearts. Because this Sixer team should have been able to advance. And just like I said before about the Bucks, although it's moot because they won the series, but all the Sixers are going to have to do this offseason is look back at Game 5. Because to lose that game at home the way they did, and in the second half, remember, 25 points, Utah on the road where they blew that lead. So how does that explain for the Sixers in their building with fans to have a 26-point lead at home and literally blow it? And the Hawks, you look at their roster and you look at their team and you say to yourself, other than Trey Young, how do they do it? They have a veteran journeyman and a one Danilo Gallinari. They have Clint Capella who is pretty much thrown aside 
And although I had his squabbles with the Houston Rockets, but what he's contributed, when you also look at Kevin Herter, a guy that a lot of people will be like, where did this kid come from? He looked like he's out of some sort of rec league and pouring in 27 points yesterday. When you also look at other guys on the team, John Collins, who had a horrendous start to his postseason in that series against the Knicks, but then he came on a little bit strong toward the end, and then now he was a big proponent here in the series, just trying to do his best against Embiid. And we know that Embiid was hurt and was laboring here, and I'm not going to put this all in the feet of Joel Embiid. I want to make this about the Hawks for the moment. But when you look at what the Hawks have done here, and Bogdanovich, who is arguably their second best player on the team, he was hurt and not really doing anything, especially in the game yesterday as he was pretty much on the bench. And for the Hawks to be able to pull out a road victory, if they would have lost that game in Philadelphia, people would have looked at that as heroic. And as you know me, there are no such thing as moral victories when it comes to rooting for any teams or even if from afar without having a team to root for but the Hawks to take the one seed to a seventh game knowing that they could have clinched that home in game six which they didn't do but certainly would have been a building block that hasn't come anywhere close to winning a championship let alone a conference final which they did six years ago when they were a one seed and got swept out by LeBron there in the 2014-2015 season. So now you have a Hawk team that's moving on, that has all the confidence in the world. And I'm going to say this about Trey Young. He is a guy that is not afraid of the limelight, is not afraid of the spotlight. And you got to give him a ton of credit because he was harassed big time in New York by the fans. He was harassed big time in Philly by the fans. And the guy is fearless. He shot 3 for 20 going into that fourth quarter and he ended up 5 for 23. But the guy still made plays. The guy still got his teammates involved. He made a big shot when it was needed. And you got to give it up to a guy like that. And a lot of people slammed that trade on draft night where it was pretty much the rights for Luka Doncic who was drafted by the Hawks to the Dallas Mavericks. But right now you have to say who's laughing now. That's not to say that Trey Young is a better player than Luka Doncic by any stretch, but you know what? Doncic, although he has all the tools and we've seen him make big shots and he's not afraid of that moment, but Trey Young doesn't have that much more help than Doncic does. But he got the job done, at least at this point. He's going on to play for the right to go to an NBA final. Luka isn't. And that's one thing you have to admire about a guy like Trey Young, whether you want to just laugh on him because he's short, you want to laugh at his hairline, his hair period. But that guy could play on my team any day. And now let's get to the flip side. Inexcusable. They need a cold, long, hard look in the mirror. And Doc Rivers, I don't want to put this all on him, but when you... Saw what happened there, as I mentioned earlier, with those Clipper teams over the years, whether it was 2015 against Houston up 3-2 and weren't able to seal the deal in their building. Obviously, last year against Denver in the bubble. And now, another scenario where you were down 3-2, your own doing, of course, as I mentioned, and then to win a game six in Atlanta to come home 
And they didn't put up a stink bomb because there were guys that came to play, but there were also some that didn't. And the first guy on that list is Ben Simmons. And I'm not telling you anything that's out of school or anything that's going to be shocking, but if this guy is still on the Sixers next year, there needs to be an investigation. I don't care if Doc Rivers and the powers that be that own the Philadelphia 76ers have gone to Ben Simmons' locker room at the end of the game and told him you better be at the gym 6 a.m. tomorrow and if he's shooting a thousand jumpers right now, he has to be gone from this team. And the reason why I say that is because when you look at what Doc Rivers said in the postgame when he was asked, do you think that Ben Simmons is a championship caliber point guard or player that could take your team to that level? And I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Doc Rivers said, I don't know the answer to that question. He couldn't answer it. Because I'm sure in his own mind, he feels that this isn't the guy to take us to the promised land. And even Joel Embiid, when he went through the sequence, and this is pretty much the poster that's going to be probably bandied about on the internet and has probably been 9,000 memes created because of it. At three minutes to go, what was it, 88-86, when he had Danilo Gallinari guarding him right underneath the basket. And he had a clear path to either go for a dunk or lay it up. The guy's 6'10". So no excuses. What does he do? He passes it to Matisse Teibel who gets fouled and he makes one or two free throws. To where the whole building booed because they knew that Simmons passed up a golden opportunity to tie the game. And I don't want to hear what Ben Simmons had to say in the post game about, oh, I thought... Danilo was on my back. I thought he was going to be right there to guard me or he was going to pretty much probably foul him because you would think at that point if Gallinari wasn't able to get the strip that that was going to be the next move. And the reason why he passed is because if he was fouled, he would have to go to the free throw line and we all know he's been historically bad this postseason when it comes to him being on the charity stripe. So the last thing he wanted to do was get fouled and then number two is that he couldn't, as I said before, He couldn't throw the ball into the ocean if he was standing on a shoreline or if he was on a Royal Caribbean cruise liner. And just based on that alone, and even Embiid in the postgame mentioned that sequence about how he wasn't able to get that basket and didn't understand why. And also said that not only that the series and the way it ended was frustrating, but it was a tricky question in reference to Ben Simmons as to him being that guy to take them to the next level. If your best player is saying that and your coach is saying that, it is time to cut bait. But here's the problem. You're going to have to take another headache back. He's due to make $140 million over the next four years. Could you imagine? A guy that in game five scored eight points, in game six scored six points, and in game seven, the biggest game of all, five points. And I believe it was two for 16 from the field. I don't care how many rebounds the guy gets. I don't care how many assists. We all know he's an all-world defensive player, but the guy cannot score to save his life. And it's in his head. That's why I laughed. Check the receipts. When people were talking about two off-seasons ago where, oh, have you seen Ben Simmons in practice? He's now making threes. He has an outside shot. I said, yeah. Let me see that when it's live action. Because I could go to a ballpark and hit batting practice and hit 15 home runs over the wall or I could shoot in a gym by myself and make 10 threes or hit 50 free throws in a row but let's see this in a real game come on people get at me I mean this is an absolute disgrace 
We knew that this guy had limitations on offense, but not to this extent. And we know he's a wonderful player on the open floor, his vision, passing, etc. That's not to knock him as far as his other physical traits and what he brings to the game of basketball. But the guy cannot score. And not only that, but because of the NBA that we live in, in 2020, 2021, you would think that this guy should be posting up everybody back to the basket, drawing fouls. But of course, he can't draw fouls on him because he can't hit free throws. But if he gets a smaller guard on him or whatever, he could certainly dish it out to a three-point shooter or try to get a five-foot bank shot or a hook shot, whatever, that he could develop here throughout the offseason. I don't know if it's in him. So that alone, he needs to go. I mean, what else can you say? Just a future performance by a guy who's making a ton of money and was a number one pick overall. And again, this is not knocking him as a person, people. It's about his game. And that's the thing. Rashid Wallace, longtime NBA player, champion on that 2004 Piston team. He said, ball don't lie. Well, guess what? Game don't lie. And his offensive game is that. Offensive. Got to call as you see it. No sugarcoating. No ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. I don't care if that guy just hit a thousand threes in the gym right now. It's a day late. And the Sixers have a lot to chew on with what they're going to do with this guy. Whether they're going to seek some sort of help to get in his head to keep him on the team because they know they owe him $140 million and they probably can't get anybody back. Or they're going to ship him. And I'll say this right now. I'm sure Daryl Morey, who's the GM of this team, wishes that he would have pulled the trigger on that trade for James Harden. And Harden is his guy. And as we all know, that's Harden's guy. Because even though he probably would have suffered a hamstring and we don't know how it would have played out, understood, etc., etc. But man, I tell you, to know that you're going to have that guy on the books for four years making that kind of money for little to no offensive output, phew, Not good. All right, now let's get to these series. In the Western Conference Final Game 1 yesterday, Devin Booker, the guy who is leading the attack because Chris Paul is out due to the health and safety protocols for COVID-19. Indefinite. We don't even know when he's going to come back. My guess, I would think Game 3, which off the top of my head may be Friday. They may have pushed it to Friday. I know game two is tomorrow. Then you'll have game one of the Eastern Conference Finals on Wednesday. They probably will play Thursday. They'll usually flip-flop each day from here until the end of their series. But that's going to be a big loss. But you would think with the way Phoenix has played here, eight straight after yesterday's performance. And it was a good game. Paul George played well. It was tied at 93 going into the fourth quarter. But it was just too much of the Suns and Devin Booker who put up 40, 13, and 11. And until CP3 gets back, to me, this is a team that's on a mission. This is a team that could taste it. And especially with Chris Paul never making it to an NBA final. I said Phoenix in seven only because of the resilience and how the Clippers have played in this postseason. I don't know how much time they have left. I don't know if the glass slipper is going to fit at the end of the series. And who knows the status of Kawhi Leonard, as I mentioned earlier. But I think Phoenix is going to prevail. I'm going to say seven. They'll probably win in six. But I said yesterday, they're going to win in seven games. I could see Phoenix going up 2-0. And then the Clippers will say, oh, we got them right where we want them. We're familiar with 
2-0 series deficits and then they'll come back and it'll probably be a back and forth home type of series where the home team will win and then either the Suns will break out and win a game six on the road or come back home to win a game seven and again let's see what Paul George because he's gonna have to carry this team and he has so far so give him credit but can he do this for another four five six games that surely remains to be seen and as far as the east goes the Hawks are a great story and and so are the Bucks for that matter and everything they've had to deal with with Giannis being the MVP the last two years and the way they exited the postseason two years ago and even last year both are great stories there's a part of me that wants the Hawks to go, but I think it's going to be the Bucks' time. And I can see this being a seven-game series because you know Trey Young is not going to be fearful of the moment. Milwaukee, not to, by any means, not denigrating their fans or the crowd, but it's not New York or Philadelphia. So you would think they're going to probably win a game or two, maybe, in Milwaukee. But I could see it going to a seventh game, and you would think that if they're at home and it's that close, Giannis is going to, do whatever it takes to seal the deal. So I'm going to pick the Bucks to win in seven. We can look ahead to a possible finals matchup. And as I tweeted last night, you know that Adam Silver, TNT, were spitting up their kale salads, their veggie medleys and rice pilaf because you know everybody was hoping for a Brooklyn-Philadelphia matchup in an Eastern Conference final. Or they would have settled for Milwaukee-Philadelphia Eastern Conference final. But instead, they got Milwaukee and Atlanta. Which is good from one standpoint and not good from the other because it's good because you have two teams that are never really there in a conference final. So you're going to have a team that's going to make it to an NBA final either for the first time ever in the Atlanta Hawks or for the first time in forever if you're the Milwaukee Bucks and they haven't won a title since 1971 going back to Kareem. So you have that dynamic and then you have the Clippers who as we know have never made it to an NBA final and the Suns have only made two finals in their history 76 against the Celtics of course the famed game six with Gar Hurd and then in 1993 six games to the Bulls the last of their first repeat against Charles Barkley. If you're ESPN ABC I understand you're not going to have really any type of sexy matchups I think you'd probably want to have Giannis there. Because he is a two-time MVP going up against the Clippers. Whether it is Kawhi Leonard remains to be seen. Or even Chris Paul, the NBA fan and the casual sports fan knows who those guys are. Trey Young is a guy who's on the come up. I don't know how the rating is going to be. Who knows? Maybe it'll be refreshing from a standpoint where a lot of people are sick of the Lakers and sick of LeBron. They're also sick of maybe even the Celtics for that matter. Not that they had a shot to get to a final. And you're going to have a brand new matchup that nobody in the least ever expected. So maybe there'll be some juice. I don't know. But if I had to guess the best finals that the ABC and ESPN suits could only hope and dream for, it would have to be Milwaukee and LA. Now, it is the Clippers, it's not the Lakers. Because when you have Kawhi and Paul George going up against Giannis, that's going to be sexy. Kawhi is going to guard Giannis, you would think, if they do play one another and if Leonard's health status improves. But even with Chris Paul there and a guy that everybody knows with the State Farm commercials, etc., I don't know if that's going to bring eyeballs to the sets, whether he plays Milwaukee or even Trey Young for that matter. So I would think Clippers, Bucks would be number one. The one that they don't want to have 
And this may be a little bit tough too. I think would be Atlanta and Phoenix. It's almost like watching Edmonton and Carolina go to a cup final in 2006. And when you say well, Edmonton, Carolina, ooh. Well, I'm sure a lot of people would have thought at the start of the postseason, if I told you Atlanta and Phoenix, they would have, ooh, they would have cringed a little bit. So we shall see a lot of basketball to be played, but that's what we have. And before we even get to the other sports, I got to stick with basketball because a lot has taken place here over the past week. And I'll try to breeze through it as quick as possible. We had a couple of coaches gone this past week, whether your name is Stan Van Gundy, New Orleans, and that could be the beginning of a long saga this offseason with the Pelicans because word on the street is that the Pelicans have been unable to put the right pieces together. I don't know if that's personnel, maybe more so coaching. I don't know if the GM, David Griffin, has anything to do with this, but there have been some sources coming out that the family of a one Zion Williamson are... Very unhappy with how things have gone here in the two years that Zion has been a part of the Pelicans to where they're, I'm not going to say request for a trade, but they're looking and hoping for Zion to be on another team, which if you're the Pelicans, you have to do whatever it takes to roll out the red carpet for Zion. And we understand that's how the NBA is. You would think it'd be like, pipe down kid, just keep working and everything will be fine. But as we all know, this is player empowerment in the NBA as it is not only just for 2021, but pretty much for the past 10 years. And you can only hope that they do whatever it takes to keep this kid and his family happy because New Orleans caught a break with getting Zion as the number one pick after trading Anthony Davis. And now you have a scenario where this is going to be a soap opera this offseason down in the bayou. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Excuse me. Scott Brooks, also gone in Washington. Let's see where the Wizards go as they did make it to the postseason, but they bowed out in five against the Sixers, as we all know. Now, what happened in Dallas over the last week is very intriguing because you had a scenario where Donnie Nelson, who's been with the organization for almost 25 years as VP of Basketball Ops, he stepped down due to differences between, I guess, Mark Cuban, you would think. And Cuban has a, not necessarily a right-hand man, but does have a figure in the organization which has a lot of influence and it looks like Donnie Nelson and this gentleman, I can't pronounce his name, he has a long name, Vargubulos, I guess his name is, the last name, and I know I butchered that, but whatever his influence is, we'll just call him Cuban's right-hand man, whatever his influence is on the Maverick organization has not only impacted Donnie Nelson stepping down, but also the coach in a one Rick Carlisle doing the same Being a part of that organization for 13 years, we know about the NBA title in 2011, and a very good coach in his right, he said, the heck with this, I'm out of here. Who knows if he also has some static with this Vargubulus guy, but the Mavericks are now searching for a head coach, and as I said last week, with the fallout with Kristaps Porzingis and not knowing what to do with him, and then Luca's come out and said that there's been some rift between him and Carlisle and a lot of it has to do with this Vargalos or Vargubulos guy so that's going to be a situation to watch because Luca, as we all know he is the Mavericks right now and he hasn't been signed to that big max deal as of yet you would think it's going to be forthcoming but if you're Mark Cuban you got to do just like I said with Zion whatever it takes to keep Luca there because no one will go to those games if he's requesting a trade or he wants out so we'll have to keep our eyes on that and with Carlisle being out and him being a former Celtic, you know his name's going to be thrust into the Celtic 
coaching position, or at least as far as rumors go, but based on what I've read, it looks like the three guys that are, I'm not going to say the odds-on favorites, but the three guys that they are certainly in favor of would be the Brooklyn Net assistant coach, Ime Oduka. Also, Darvin Ham is getting a good look, and he's been an assistant for a long time as well in this league, and Chauncey Billups, who we talked about a little bit last week. So even if Carlisle is trying to push his way to the top of this coaching carousel there, as far as prospects for the Celtics go, he has some competition with those other three guys, so we'll keep our eyes on that. And then speaking of the Celtics, Brad Stevens did not waste any time by making his first move as VP of Basketball Ops as he traded Kemba Walker on Friday to the Oklahoma City Thunder and also their number one pick this year in return, bringing back Al Horford and I believe a second round pick in 2023, if I'm not mistaken. And when I heard of that trade, to me, that was not only a slam dunk, but that was a layup as if I've ever seen one. Because Kemba's going to be owed $71 million over the next two years, where Horford is going to be owed $41 million guaranteed. And right, they gave up a first-round pick. It's going to be somewhere in the late teens. If that, who cares? Because as we know, the Celtics have not really drafted well over the years. Yes, we still have to wait for the Aaron Neesmiths and maybe even the Romeo Langfords to kind of pan out here. And we'll see what Robert Williams does as a player. But by... Getting that contract off the books and even bringing in Horford, a guy who's going to bring a lot of presence to that locker room. He's familiar with the culture there. I'm sure he's going to get to play sometime. They need some size. But his leadership, his veteran savvy, all that is going to be put to the forefront here for the Celtics. And who knows what's going to happen with Marcus Smart. That's going to remain to be seen as far as him going into a final year of a contract and possibly being traded. You're not going to get much for him, as I've said in the past, but... A very wise, shrewd move by Stevens, and hopefully that's a sign of good things to come here in this offseason for the Celtics. But that's what we have, and a lot to dissect there with the NBA. I know it took a lot there right off the top. So, you know, I'm going to now zoom forward to the other sport that's looking forward to crowning a champion. And even though we're not into the Stanley Cup Finals just yet, we're in the middle of two series that are even at two apiece. And you know I'm going to start off with the Islanders here. The Islanders got the lightning where they want them. They split the first two games down in Tampa. The game two, what could you say? I knew that Tampa was going to come out of the gate. And they did score those three goals. I know the second goal was one that should have been scraped off the board because there was too many men on the ice. Wasn't the case, unfortunately. Just a bad job on the refs there. But the lightning were able to pile it on. A couple of power play goals. They win 4-2. So now they come to the island to play a game three where you knew it was going to be a hornet's nest. And the Islanders had some chances, but with the game at 1-1 late in the second period, and Adam Pellick, who took a bad interference call, just a terrible job. I know he tried to dispute that, but that was just, just, what could you say? Putrid on all fronts. But the Islanders did not play well in their penalty kill They just let Tampa set up shop back and forth, tic-tac-toe with the passes, Nikita Kucherov to Victor Hedman, Braden Point, etc. And then four seconds after the penalty expired, this is late in the second period, to where Braden Point was literally horizontal to the ice where he scraped the puck from beneath him into the net between the five-hole of a one Semyon Varlamov. So the Lightning take a 2-1 lead, and then after that, 
the Lightning pretty much went in defensive mode. The Islanders tried to get that equalizer. They were unable to do so. And give it up to the Lightning. They played chipping the series, which is not their forte, but they've been able to stand up to the Islanders to that point. And I know the officiating here in this series has been awful. When the Islanders scored their power play goal in the second period by Brock Nelson, that was the goalie interference where he was pushed by Adam Pellick of all people, or I believe it was Ryan Pulak, to where he was pushed into the net and into Volamov, who had to leave the game temporarily, where Ilya Sorokin actually did a very good job in his replacement. And that was a terrible call. But And we've seen terrible calls throughout here in this series, so hopefully they get their act together before Game 5 tonight. But with the Islanders now down two games to one in the series and pretty much got them right where they want them because when you look at the previous two series, they were down 2-1 to Pittsburgh and they won a game four at home, win a game five and six to go to the next round against the Bruins where they win a game four at home, a game five in Boston and ice the series in game six. Now, can we see a repeat performance? Remains to be seen. But when we look at that game four, Islanders came out of the gate Tampa, they're weird. They have these moments just like they did in game one where they look, I'm not going to say listless, but they feel like they could just turn on the switch when they have to and when they take off, they're unstoppable. And they certainly did not play well in the first two periods. The Islanders had the three-goal second period, which was led by Josh Bailey with the top shelf shot there as well as Matthew Barzal, who's been on fire, scoring a ton of goals here. And then Matt Martin getting his first goal in the postseason to where now you get into the third period and you knew Tampa, there was going to be a flurry at some point. Braden Point, who scored his seventh consecutive game with a goal on a beautiful shot. I thought the defense should have stood him up there a little bit, but that's what's going to happen when you have a 3-0 lead in the game. And then just a couple minutes later, Tyler Johnson gets a beautiful shot there off a screen. And now you're thinking... Is this where the Islanders are going to unfold and then hopefully not get the game tied and then possibly lose in regulation or even worse in overtime? But Barry Trotz calls a timeout. Everybody regroups. Everybody is fine. It's pretty much back and forth, almost like a heavyweight fight to where there weren't a lot of golden opportunities for scoring by either team throughout the course of the third period. And then now late in the third period where the Islanders are looking to just pretty much hang on for dear life. You had the atrocious call by the refs where Victor Hedman trips. I forgot who it was off the top of my head. Maybe it was Anthony Beauvillier, but he trips one of the players. And then he slams his stick to the boards where I thought he should have got an unsportsmanlike or a 10-minute misconduct. I mean, come on. What are you doing slamming your stick to the... I get you're frustrated, but just a terrible display by Hedman. You expect better. So then now the Islanders play keep away on this power play to the point where now the puck is in the Islanders zone. The Lightning pull Vasilevsky to get an extra skater. So now it's five on six to where the Lightning have a couple of opportunities to score, including literally in the waning seconds of the game, former Ranger Ryan McDonough, who has a clear path to the net, decides not to take a shot. He does a spinorama where, as I like to say, the goaltender in a one Semyon Varlamov is swimming. Because he's flailing his pads, his stick, glove, everything to where McDonough has a backhanded open net to tie the game as the buzzer is about to sound. And then Ryan Pulak comes to save the day by stopping the puck, batting it to the corner. The Islanders win. I tell you, I've never seen an ending of the game like that ever in all the years I've watched hockey. 
yes, it usually comes down to a final shot where it's a save or let's say even goes into the net or maybe even hits a crossbar. But not to the point where a defenseman had to come swat the puck out because that would have went into overtime. And if that game would have been tied and it would have been right before the buzzer, I would have told you right then and there, the Islanders were not going to win that game. Because all of the wind would have been in the lightning sails and chances are they probably would have eked out that game and that would have been the killer going back to the Tampa for game five. But that's not the case. Thank goodness we have a series. And all I could say for the Islanders tonight, if they're going to repeat this trend of the first and second round, I'm not going to say that they have to come out with a flurry, they have to come out crazy, whatever. To me, the main thing is they just need to continue to play their defensive style Tampa, you know, is going to come out firing because they came out game four as if, like I said, that it's just a matter of time before we could just turn it right on and we'll just punish the net. We'll just get at Varlamov. We'll take our chances and away we go. And I could see that doing right from the start that that's what they're going to do. So to me, they're going to have to withstand those first five to seven minutes of the game. And they're also going to have to do that throughout the course of the game. But to me, the opening minutes of this game is going to be crucial for the Islanders to win. And as we've seen, the team that scores first in these playoff games, they go on the win. Hopefully a trend can be broken if the Islanders do not score. But this is going to be a tall order for this Islander team, I think. I think it's going to go back to Long Island 3-2. I don't think it's going to be a situation where the Islanders are going to win this game. Of course, I think they can. But they're going to have to play as sharp as a defensive game, as they've played all year long. If they play anywhere close to what they did at the end of game six against the Bruins in those final 15 minutes, they can win the game. I I think they will win the game. But again, it's going to take that type of effort for 60 minutes. And I said before, not trying to throw a reverse jinx, I said that the Lightning were going to win in six. And right now the table's set for it to happen that way. I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Islanders steal this game and then come back to the barn for one last time, possibly, and just put the final nail in the coffin. But to me, they're going to have to withstand that, and they're going to have to withstand not making stupid penalties. The Adam Pellet penalty from the other day, they can't have that. They can't have sloppy, lazy, just dumb penalties. Because in their building, power play, it's going to be tough for them to withstand. So we'll wait and see what happens. And as we look at the other series between Montreal and Vegas, this has been a battle back and forth to where the Canadians came back to take game two after game one where it went to Vegas as they were victorious, pretty much cruised to a 4-1 victory. And then the Canadians jump out to a 3-0 lead in game two only to hang on to win game two where Alex Pietrangelo has had a phenomenal postseason and phenomenal series here as he's just gotten goal after goal after goal, it seems, for the Golden Knights. And then as they shift the scene to Montreal to where we've had a team here in the U.S. make it across the border for the first time. And what happens? The coach of the Canadiens comes down with COVID. And a one, Dominique Ducharme. Also the GM, McCrimmon, also had come down with COVID. So you got to wonder what happened here when they traveled into the States to Vegas. Maybe they... uh Thought the restrictions with it being lifted, they felt as if they had the leeway or maybe they were negligent to think that, hey, if everything's all right here, we could go out without masks and things of that nature. Well, it caught the coach and the GM, but it certainly didn't stop the 
Canadians as they got a gift from the gods there where Marc-Andre Fleury played the puck behind the net late there in the third period to where the puck came out into the crease and then slammed into the net from a backhand by Josh Anderson. And that was what about, I guess, less than two minutes to go. I guess the goal was what, 1807? And then all that did was propel Anderson to score the OT winner, 3-2. to two, And then you thought to yourself, the ghosts of Canadians past are coming out here because for Fleury to botch that play behind the net to where the puck hit off the heel of his stick, through his legs, out into the crease. Uh, it just made you think, how is it not possible for the Canadians to go on and maybe try to obtain that 24th Stanley Cup or at least the, have the opportunity to get that? But then game four last night where Robin Leonard was now in goal and Leonard did a Jedi mind trick to himself where he encouraged the Twitter followers or the Twitter faithful or hockey Twitter, whatever you want to call it, to get on his case, to use it as motivation. And it worked because they were able to not only win the game and Leonard was great in that, he stopped a big breakaway there from Cole Caulfield I believe what was it uh, early on in the third period and Leonard who's had these moments here throughout the last few years and we know he's a top flight goalie when he is on but it was Nikolai Roy with the game winner in overtime after getting a big goal there in the third period when they were down one nothing and the Golden Knights hang on to take the series back to Vegas for a game five tomorrow night and I said the Golden Knights would win five. I thought that the clock would strike 12 on the Canadians. But with this series, I could see this going seven. And out of these two series, I could see this one going seven more than the Islanders series. I don't know. I just think that the Islanders have these stretches where it's tough for them to muster up these opportunities to score goals. And yes, they've hit crossbars. And yes, they've had some bad luck here a little bit. And also with uh, poor officiating. But yes, where can we see... J.G. Pajot finally score a goal. Can he get back into the mix? Same with Jordan Eberle. And I know that there were some line changes there in late in that Islander lightning game where he took Komarov off that line with Barzal and Eberle. And he's trying to do whatever it takes to switch it up. Now, he's not going to be able to do that tonight against Tampa because he's the road team, so they do not get the last shift. But I could see the Canadians and Golden Knights going to a Game 7. And I'm going to say Vegas to win. And we know it's not a sexy matchup at the end of the day if it's Tampa and Vegas because people are going to look at that as, what, Tampa and Vegas? Those aren't hockey towns. Well, Tampa's your defending Stanley Cup champ and Vegas at least has been on the radar going back to their first season as a Stanley Cup participant, final, that is. But if you have the Islanders there, I understand it's New York, but it's not the Rangers. And even Montreal, we know about the history of the Canadians. I think if they, in a perfect world... People would probably want Montreal and Tampa because you'd have the history of the Montreal Canadiens and then the Tampa Bay Lightning and what they've done recently. Maybe they would look at that as being a matchup that they'd like to have. But then you could look at the Canadiens and the Islanders who are the two franchises that won a total of eight cups between those two organizations over eight years. From 76 to 79 was Montreal and from 80 to 83 was the Islanders. So... Yeah, you have a lot of storylines with these teams. I don't know what NBC would like to have at the end of the day. Maybe they'd want to see Montreal and the Islanders. Who knows? Or maybe Tampa and Montreal. I think you have 
a good argument for any one of these matchups. If it's Islanders Vegas, still pretty good because then you have those games at the National Coliseum to close out that building where Vegas, they have a pomp and circumstance because it's Vegas with the pregame and everything that happens there. We've talked about Tampa and what they've done recently and then, of course, the Canadiens. So I think you can't go wrong with any of them, but for the casual fan, they're not going to care. That's the bottom line. And then as the off-ice news goes, Gerard Gallant is your new Ranger coach. Speaking of which, he was behind the bench for the inaugural season with the Vegas Golden Knights and he took that team to a Stanley Cup. Let's see what he does with this young Ranger team. Gallant, who is a longtime Red Wing, as we know, on that famed line between he, Steve Eisman, and Bob Probert. May he rest in peace. Of course, got to shout that out. But let's see what Gallant does. Bring some toughness, a little bit of attitude, not only as his days as a player, but also with his tenure most recently with the Golden Knights. So we'll see how that unfolds. All right, now let's get to the baseball here as we are getting closer to the end of the month. And of course, the All-Star break, which is still, what, three and a half weeks from now which will be played in Colorado. And we still have some games to go until we get to the 81 game mark for a lot of the teams that are out there. I believe what most teams have played somewhere in the 70s. If I had to guess, yeah, as I look right now, it could be anywhere between 70 to 72, 73 games, depending on who you are. But baseball today will implement the suspension, the ban, as we talked about last week, where a pitcher is going to get 10 games if he's caught with any Foreign substances, whether that's sunscreen, the spider tack, rosin, etc. And there was some backlash of this last week to where Tyler Glass now was diagnosed with a partially torn UCL. And we all know that that's the ACL for the elbow, the equivalent to that. And with Glass now, who is the ace of that Tampa Bay Rays staff and taking precaution as to what they're going to do moving forward with him... Now, this injury looks like it's similar to, if you remember, Yankee fans, Masahiro Tanaka, where he had that partial tear, I believe, and it was his second year of his Yankee tenure, and never got surgery, actually pitched through it, and was fine, but we know Tanaka was more of a finesse pitcher than Glasnow is. Glasnow is definitely have the hard fastball, the hard curve, slider, etc. But with Glasnow coming out and saying, oh, this screws up my routine, they should have done this at the beginning of the year, or waited to the end of the year. Sadly, it's tough luck. Now, I know there's a lot to go around as far as the blame is concerned, but here's the one thing that Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred has in his back pocket. Prior to the spring training pitches and catches reporting in February of 2020, there were email memos that went out stating that we know that there's some funny stuff going on with the baseballs we have an idea or we're detecting that there's been some advantages by these pitchers well we're gonna have to start cleaning this up so you gotta guys gotta make sure that you do so we're gonna give you enough time and get your act together but we're gonna start cracking down on this if it's not cleaned up so there was a warning made and that was one thing that the baseball players shunned but you gotta remember this was february 2020 and we know that about a month or maybe five weeks after that, the pandemic hit. So then as we fast forward to July of last year, nothing was enacted, nothing was brought up. Major League Baseball was more concerned about getting a season in, a 60-game one at that, and we know how that took place. So they put that aside and they figured, let's just get a World Series and a champion involved and we'll worry about that next year. To where 
March 23rd of this year, a memo went out to the 30 Major League Baseball teams to say, hey, remember what happened in February 2020 with those emails we sent out? Well, guess what? We're going to crack down on this. Now, even though they did come out and say that, but why did they wait till June to finally look at it and say, all right, these are the new rules. This is what's going to take place if a guy's going to be caught with any type of foreign substance on him. Why couldn't they have done this in April? Or why couldn't they have said anything then to say, hey guys, if this isn't cleaned up by May 1st, we're going to have to start some punishments here. To where pitchers maybe in March could say, all right, well, let me try changing the grip on the ball or whatever because the balls are slick and that's why they need the rosin or the sunscreen, whatever. And that was the issue with Tyler Glass now because now he had to compromise his grip therefore affecting his elbow and this is why he has his partial tear the players although they may want to argue that but you also got to understand too is that the batters or the position players Charlie Blackman Josh Donaldson as I said last week they've bitched and moaned about this to the point where now they're getting their wish and I think overall this isn't a difference between the players the everyday player and the pitcher I don't think there's going to be a chasm or some sort of division between the two, but this was something that the players with that SI article weeks ago that they had to address. And now it's at a point to where here it is, these pitchers are going to have to change their grips and they're going to have to, who knows if it's going to lead to injury or if it's going to lead to decreased performance. But as we've seen, the batting averages, the home runs and runs scored have gone up ever since June the 1st. So we'll see if the umpires are going to press the issue here on these pitchers on whether or not they are carrying something or do have some sort of sticky stuff or whatever it is to get that advantage in order to increase that spin rate and to get those strikeouts and to get key outs. And who knows? And again, this is all on the umpires. You know, because the manager isn't going to go out for argument's sake. If you're Luis Rojas and it's against the Dodgers, and Trevor Bowers pitching against you, and in the third inning, you decide to go to the umpire and say, hey, can you check Trevor Bowers' glove or check to see if he has any substances on him? And let's say they don't find anything. Okay, fine. But then Jacob DeGrom's starting the next day, and then now you know Dave Roberts is going to come out and say, hey, can you check Mr. DeGrom to see what's happening as far as any type of sticky substances on his person? So you know the manager is going to do it, but I'm sure there's probably going to be a reminder, whomever that day starter is or what have you to say hey at some point are you going to take a look at this guy or even a reliever they may look and say a guy like Aroldis Chapman who his performance has certainly gone down a little bit here over the last few weeks to say can we check on Chapman when he comes in in the eighth inning when you're handing out the lineup or let's say if you have a break before you hand out the lineup cards before the start of a game all this is taken into consideration as plausible because If the umpires aren't going to be enforcing this on a consistent basis, then the manager's going to have to get in their ear. Because other than that, then why enact this new rule for these umpires to crack down on this alleged cheating? And while we're at it, can we also implement a couple other things besides the crackdown on cheating? And I get that this is more of an integrity thing, so baseball had to do this. And I'm sure what I'm about to say is and has been collectively bargained by the players going back to last year. But while we're at it, can we get rid of the runner on second in the 10th inning, as well as the seven inning doubleheaders? Because 
as the world has opened up, or I should say as the country has opened up, and here in New York, City Field, full stadiums, all the restrictions have been lifted as far as social distancing, right, for those who've been unvaccinated, they do have to wear a mask, understood, etc., but for those who could go to a ballpark and be shoulder to shoulder to the next guy, don't you think it's time to scrap the runner on second and the tenth, as well as the doubleheaders now that are only played in seven innings? Just a thought. Now, again, players probably want to be in and out. And I'm sure he's thought about this, but I would think that Rob Manfred will probably say something along the lines because last year you understood why they did this. This year, now, with the way things have transpired here since the start of the baseball season, we can revise this too. Let's get back to real baseball. Let's get back to the way baseball should be played. Now, there should also be Tony Clark will be responsible, the head of the Players Association. There should be a poll or take the temperature of the players as to whether or not they want to scrap this. And if they do, they should just do it. Why not? If a majority of the players say no for this year, we know that the collective bargaining agreement is going to be done at the end of the season. All right, then fine. Then we could knock the players for that. But at least make the effort to say, all right, we want to be done with this. Let's have... Baseball the way it should be instead of baseball to have it revised because of the circumstances and the conditions of what the country is allowing us to do. So that's all I say to Major League Baseball and hopefully they get that memo. And I would think they're working on it, but come on, let's get to it. Some news and notes. I know that the Diamondbacks, 23 straight road losses. They beat the 63 Mets. So the Mets who have been futile in those early years, they don't have to worry about having that distinction anymore. And the D-backs, what could you say? I think in their last 40-some-odd games, they've won, what, five or six games? I couldn't even tell you, but they have been absolutely an abomination. But as we go through it here, there has been some tightening of the division races here over the last week, and with the American League East in particular, because the Rays are looking for a little bit of a shakeup. They're promoting their wonder kid, Wander Franco, the shortstop, to the major league level in light of them losing six straight to where they're a half game back of the Red Sox and then the Yankees who've had a very good week after their abysmal week in Philadelphia last Saturday and Sunday well they've turned the tables to where they've won now five out of six and have cut their eight and a half game lead in half and at the time was to the Rays so they perform well and to the point where now in the past week They've had two triple plays, one to end the game yesterday, and three overall this year, and I believe in the last five weeks. And the Yankees, who have been killed for their defense recently, especially their infield with Gleyber Torres's and his errors and their outfield with a mishmash of people. The Yankees now have, I'm not going to say all of a sudden turned their season around, but now they've gotten some good feeling in their locker room. So let's see with the Royals coming in tomorrow, if they can continue their winning ways and try to creep up there in the AL East. The White Sox, who have hit the skids here a little bit as of late, where the Indians are now just a game and a loss, two and a half behind them in the Central. And we know that between Houston and Oakland, it is going to be a Royal Rumble there to where now the Astros have been the hottest team. Winners of seven in a row, although they are tied for first, but they are percentage points ahead 
because they have a 43 and 28 record and the A's 44 and 29. And of course, they just lost the two games here over the weekend to the Yankees as uh, they left town last night. And then in the National League with the East, the Mets, who are still piecing it together with these players. Now, Jeff McNeil, I hadn't really paid attention to the Mets a lot this weekend. I know they lost 3-4 to Washington. They had a doubleheader there on Saturday where Francisco Lindor had two home runs and accounted for all five RBIs in that first game. And the Mets are going to face a lot of doubleheaders here. They have a doubleheader today where Jacob DeGrom is going to pitch the first game. They also have a doubleheader later in the week with the Phillies. I believe on Friday is going to be a doubleheader. Or may even be Saturday. Off the top of my head. So they have a lot of these games to make up here. Which is going to tax not only their pitching, especially their bullpen. But also their position players where Jeff McNeil should be coming back. If he didn't come back already, he was scheduled to come back over the weekend. Also, Michael Conforto may be coming back this weekend. Brandon Nimmel supposedly on the mend. And he could be in the lineup sometime, maybe before July. So, with all of the replacements that the Mets have been able to plug in there and show their depth, whether your name is Kevin Pillar, Jonathan VR, Jose Peraza, they've certainly been able to hold the fort here. But now with all these games that are going to be upcoming here for the Mets, it's going to be a challenge, to say the least, as we start to get into some real hot weather. Although it's going to cool off here midweek, but with the humidity and maybe some rain coming later tonight, ugh. The Mets can no longer afford to have any more of these types of uh, postponements. But with the Phillies still under 500 and the Mets six in a loss, they have a comfortable lead there in the East. Cubs and Brewers are pretty much the same what we saw last week, although the Cubs lost three out of four to the Mets last week at City Field. But the Brewers playing well and the Reds and Cardinals are four games back where the Cardinals had slipped big time and give it up to the Reds as they've been playing well, although they just recently lost four in a row. So who knows if the Reds are going to be built to last here in this, not only Central, but also in the race. And then the Padres, even winners of four in a row prior to that, had not been playing well and right now are staring at a five-game deficit, six in a loss to the first-place Giants. And the Dodgers are just a game behind the Giants in the loss with one and a half back. As the team in Northern California continues to be atop the NL West where the Dodgers, the team that everybody expected to be in first place pretty much from start to finish, are still trailing there at just a game in the loss. And baseball, we'll see what happens with this scenario regarding the pitchers and Baseball will be the one sport that we'll focus on a lot here as the NBA and NHL seasons start to dwindle down to their precious few games. So, again, baseball has just, I don't know. I've been following it. You know I've been on top of it. But it's one of those things where it just really hasn't been an exciting season. Yes, you've had some races starting to develop and some teams that have been in the mix, but I don't know. It just hasn't really stuck out to me And I guess maybe we have to get past these winter sports in order to really get the full feel of baseball. But we'll continue to check that out. And yes, and as I look at the Diamondbacks, they have lost 17 games in a row. And here's the crazy thing, real quick. The Diamondbacks have been pathetic on the road. As I said, they've lost 23, now more than that, straight games on the road. But they just need to look in their own division to find a team that has less road wins than they do. 
And that's the Colorado Rockies have only won five games away from Coors Field. So that's just the type of baseball season we've had with all these no-hitters and now with the controversy regarding the sticky stuff and then you have these road teams that are just pathetic and the Orioles have been awful. Yeah, baseball hasn't really been warm and fuzzy here over the first couple of months, if you ask me. But hopefully it'll start to pick up here as we get into July, the All-Star break, and then when the pennant races really heat up as we get into the teeth of summer. All right, so let me hit up a few quickies here before we say goodbye, including the U.S. Open with John Rahm, which I'll get to. But I'm going to start off here with the ruling that came down today from the U.S. Supreme Court, and which is historic when you look at it from the grand scheme of things with college sports to where the Supreme Court ruled 9 nothing in favor of student-athletes to get some kind of monetary compensation for Division I football and basketball student-athletes. And this will be very interesting to see when this kicks off. I don't know if it's going to start this upcoming season. It could be as soon as September or even August because the college football season will start in late August. We understand that there has to be a point to differentiate when you look at these student athletes whether you have the star quarterback the star running back defensive player point guard forward maybe even center as to who's going to get this conversation and how much I understand that's probably all going to be in the fine print but with student athletes being able to get paid let's just put it that way it's going to change things in a huge way Because as we know, the NCAA has been able to bilk tons of money from these students and the students weren't able to get a dime. We've heard, read, seen all the scandals throughout the year, whether it was going back as early as the Fab Five and what happened there with the situation with the Michigan Wolverines, with Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, etc. Reggie Bush there with the USC football team having the Heisman taken away from him due to gifts being taken. Recently, rumors about Zion Williamson at Duke. So now you don't have to worry about that. But I'm sure there's going to be some red tape there as to what type of compensation they're going to get because it's not as if you're going to have a guy, let's say, just to use Zion Williamson at some car dealership, signing pictures and taking selfies for the car dealership, knowing that he's getting paid through Cadillac or Porsche or whomever it may be. So that's one thing that the NCAA, I'm sure they're going to keep their fingers on the pulse because if an athlete can make money on campus as a student athlete, then what's there to say about the athlete who's going to make money off campus if he's the BMOC and everybody wants this person's attention, whether it is a car dealership or a local restaurant or establishment that could certainly benefit from having a player of that ilk be there for a couple of hours just to sign some autographs and take some pictures and pay him in the process. So how far does that go when it comes to a player getting money or even the guy that's not the top player, a guy that may be the third or fourth best player in the team that maybe isn't making as much as the top player, but is showing up at an autograph signing that is making some money. How does that factor in? I know it's a lot to dive into, but just from the standpoint of the ruling coming down, I mean, it's historic because how this is going to shape up here and what the NCAA is going to do, and you know they're going to do whatever it takes outside of the practice field and the game day 
scenarios with these student athletes. They're going to do whatever to shut that down when it comes to them making money outside of that. But it's very early on. We'll monitor this as we go along. But certainly some news that's worthy to be brought up here and uh, a very groundbreaking and, again, historic, to say the least. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Quickly, the NFL, a couple of things. Justin Fields, he's on point with being the backup to Andy Dalton in Chicago. He's buying into what the Bears have laid out for the upcoming season. So no griping, no, oh, I should be the starting quarterback. So no matter what he does in this preseason, he knows that it's going to be Andy Dalton under center come week one. I know Derek Carr, speaking to quarterbacks, he said that he would probably quit if he was traded from the Raiders. Now with all that money, I'm sure he's probably saved up a ton of money. He has a family, etc. But are you going to walk away from 20 some million dollars a year, especially if you get traded to a team that has a chance to go to Super Bowl? We'll see if the Raiders plan to jettison, and not to say he's disgruntled, I'm sure he wants to stay there, but obviously it's just something, do we have to keep her tuned in or eyes out for? Or whatever? No, no, I don't know, but I just bring it up because is this guy going to walk away if he does get traded from whatever is left on his contract? That remains to be seen. And then I know the Cole Beasley news has been a buzz here over the last few days, defending the vaccine talk about saying he's going to live the life the way he wants to. And fine, that's his right, 1,000%. But in the process, he's going to have to be responsible and not reckless in order to abide by the protocols that the NFL has written out. And even then, he calls that a joke to the NFLPA. Beasley said that he would quit if that's the case. All right, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Now, Cole Beasley, we all know, slot receiver, good tough receiver but you know this guy isn't Calvin Johnson so even if he walked tomorrow are the NFL fans maybe in Buffalo will but are the NFL fans going to miss this guy absolutely not and yeah if he feels like he can't be in a weight room without a mask or in a sauna hot tub whatever or even in a locker room knowing that he hasn't been vaccinated and if he feels like ah I don't need to do so my team is 70%, 70%, I don't even know if that's the case. I'm just throwing this number out there. But if they are more than 70% vaccinated throughout the course of the team, personnel, coaches, etc. And if he feels like, hey, well, if they're not going to get it, even if I do have it. If he's going to go with that type of attitude, then obviously it's going to be unacceptable. I mean, you would think that he would show a little bit more caution and a little bit more respect to his teammates and to his surroundings than just think that, ah, well, I'm not getting the vaccine, so later for everybody, but... We'll see how that goes. And now to turn my attention to golf because the third leg of the majors for the season, we know that the Masters is coming on in April and then last month the PGA where Phil Mickelson was the story winning the PGA over at Kiwa Island down in South Carolina, the oldest ever winner major. And a lot of the buzz and a lot of the news was about Phil Mickelson taking his game to the next level to where he could finally get that elusive U.S. Open And by shooting a 75 on the first day, he was no longer in sight to come anywhere close to what he did last month. And it's weird because how this tournament played out was similar to Kiwa Island because nobody really dominated the course. The winner, and of course we're going to get to that, won six under for the whole tournament. You know, nobody was in double digits. Nobody went running away. Nobody was, not like the Masters where you had... Guys, you know, 20 under when I looked last year at Dustin Johnson. It wasn't anything like that. 
and the elements were similar on the coast by the water equivalent to what happened there in South Carolina last month and when you look at the leaderboard especially going into that final day where you had Russell Henley Mackenzie Hughes Louis Ustusen all five under heading into the final round with Bryson DeChambeau nipping at the heels Colin Morikawa and who was the person that ended up being on top talk about a little bit of karma it was none other than John Rahm, a guy who had to be pulled off of the golf course two weeks ago at the Memorial Tournament because he had come down with COVID and then was able to be cleared earlier in the week to where he shows up there at Torrey Pines and put in a hell of a final round to where he wasn't even in the top five going into that final round yesterday. And here he was to where on the final two holes put it a 22-foot birdie and then an 18-foot putt to close out the tournament in just grand and dramatic fashion to where he had his wife and his newborn son of two months in tow a moment on Father's Day that I'm sure he'll remember for the rest of his life and will be able to share with his son as to the tournament events dating back to that memorial tournament and how he had to step down because of COVID and here he is now winning his first ever major. And the one guy that you got to really feel for here is Ustusen. Here was a guy that played well throughout the tournament, went into the final day tied at the top, and then he's going to look back at that 17th hole to where he bogeyed and pretty much just let the tournament slip away from him. And here's a guy that always seems to be close to the top of the leaderboard, similar to a Lee Westwood, similar to a Tommy Fleetwood, to where they perform well the whole weekend. And then where the money is on the line, where the chips have fallen to the point where he's that close to winning a major golf tournament. And then that's the one hole that's going to keep him up until the British next month. And there were a lot of other players in contention here. Whether your name is Rory McIlroy, even Brooks Kepka, and that back and forth with Bryson DeChambeau. And DeChambeau was just two strokes back of those aforementioned Troika at the top of the leaderboard. But in the back nine, he just fell apart. He said he suffered bad break after bad break. Uh, to me, that sounds like an excuse. Uh, DeChambeau just wilted there in the back nine on that final round yesterday to where he was not to be seen. Even Colin Morikawa. But with Rom and his performance and talk about redemption in the best way. So congratulations to him and winning the U.S. Open. And now we have one more major left and that's going to be next month at the British. It's called the Open now, but obviously known as the British Open. I don't know if it's going to be in Scotland or outside of London. Should know that, but at the same time, we will certainly take a look at that being the last major and we'll see who will be favor to come out from that on top and then one last thing Wimbledon is a couple of weeks away and you're not going to see Naomi Osaka for the same reasons you didn't see her for the French Open with the mental health issues that she's been dealing with and then Rafael Nadal in listening to his body withdrew and won't participate in the Olympics either that doesn't make a difference to me but to not have Nadal there I'm sure he's probably going to gear up for the US Open you would think but you're not going to see Rafa there participating at Wimbledon at the end of 
June into July. All right, now let me get to my hero and zero of the week to close us out. My hero of the week is Cincinnati Reds first baseman Joey Votto, who on Saturday in San Diego got ejected in the first inning for arguing a called strike. And in the crowd was a six-year-old girl named Abigail. As she was there to see the Reds and her favorite player and one Joey Votto. And considering that before you even get to the bottom of the first inning, he was no longer to be found. But guess what? Word got back to Joey Votto that this one girl who was in the ballpark to see him was able to not only autograph a baseball for the girl, but saying, I'm sorry I got thrown out. Here's a baseball for you. But they also offered her tickets to the next day, which was yesterday, Sunday. And at the same time, was able to meet before the game right there by the dugout over there near the box seats to the right of the Cincinnati Red dugout. And nice little exchange between Votto and the girl which I'm sure made her dream come true. So you know what, Joey Votto, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to the Mexican soccer fans for their anti-gay chants during a pre-Olympic qualifying tournament where their own teams will have to play now behind closed doors for the next couple of games due to their behavior. I don't know what was said, but for whatever the reason, this chant kept on going on throughout the course of the game. Uh, Just an awful job. What are you doing? Uh, I don't know if it was directed at a particular player or and whether they meant that in jest or it wasn't meant to be as hurtful. Come on. They need to know better than that. Just an awful job by those Mexican fans for doing that. And who knows if the Mexican team will actually end up qualifying because of their behavior and not having the support from their fans. So they are my zeros of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 199 in the books. We're just uh, another episode away from 200. I appreciate you guys from the bottom of my heart, whether you've been here since day one or you're listening for the first time, to take the time out of your day, your busy schedule, to listen to what it is I have to say about sports is one of the reasons why I continue to do this because I love to talk about sports. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, people. And if you haven't done so, just like I said at the very top, to promote and expand the podcast as far as getting it out there to the people whether it's by word of mouth social media what have you please do that and also subscribe rate review on wherever you get your podcast you know the deal just leave a rating post a review whatever it may be i would sincerely appreciate it also if you want to hit me up you could contact me dm me or via email at instagram j reels or the j reels podcast on twitter j reels one just a number on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, and the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, send them my way. I will be sure to follow up. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this podcast, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast, which is P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N. As in Nancy, whatever you want to put forth, out of your hard-earned money just to have upkeep of the website, the production, the equipment, everything that takes place with this podcast, whatever you want to put forth, I will sincerely appreciate it from the bottom of my heart because just like I said a minute ago, this is why I love to talk about people. This is why I'm here each and every week. I'm not going anywhere. Episode 200 is on the horizon and I plan to do 2,000 more. Because I love to dissect, get into 
with my opinions and analysis on everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.